David Leventhal has had a distinguished career as a professional dancer. His background as a dancer has given him a unique perspective on motivation, human movement, and what it takes to live a creatively fulfilling life. Today, he is the director of the global dance program, Dance PD, which is based at the Mark Morris Dance Group in New York City. The program was established in 2001 as a collaboration between the Mark Morris Dance Group and the Brooklyn Parkinson Group, a local support organization for people living with Parkinson's. The team at Dancer PD translate the art and science of dance to improve the quality of life for people living with Parkinson's disease. David, dancers and researchers have a unique perspective on human movement. What are the valuable aspects from dancing that are beneficial for those with Parkinson's disease? It's great to be here. The thing about dance is it's such a multifaceted and multifocal activity. When we're talking about benefits, particularly for people living with a movement disorder like Parkinson's, we're looking at broad spectrum. We're looking at the physical issues that people with Parkinson's experience. That includes balance challenges, coordination challenges, challenges initiating movement, and challenges sustaining movement. All of those things are addressed in dance training very directly. No matter what style of dance you're doing, you're working on those elements very specifically. When we ask people with Parkinson's into the space and dance with them, they are also working on those elements. They don't know that they're working on some of the symptoms that they're experiencing because they're dancing. They're experiencing it from a creative, artistic perspective. But the nitty-gritty of that is they're working on very specific motor skills that start to be affected by Parkinson's and training themselves back to a place where they can control some of those issues. The other thing that we think a lot about is, no pun intended here, but dance is first and foremost a cognitive activity. One of the things that we know in dance training is that we are training a thought process for how to initiate movement, for how to think about and remember patterns, how to think about moving through the space around us. Parkinson's also affects cognitive function, it affects executive function. By helping people really think about strategies to initiate and maintain their movement, we are focused very much on those cognitive skills, movement pattern, movement sequences, movement B coming after movement A. Those are things that seem ordinary and organic and automatic for people without Parkinson's, but Parkinson's takes away that automaticity. Folks living with Parkinson's need to really think about every movement they make and they need to think about the sequence of those movements. Dance is really good because it's all about sequencing and planning choreography. We hope and we know that people take that planning process in class, they apply it to the choreography of life, the things they do every day, walking down the street or getting into their car or, or going to the supermarket. The sequencing they do in class is a practice for the kind of sequencing we think they do in life. And then the two other elements are expression and social interaction. The expressive part of dance is really probably the, one of the oldest elements of dance as a human connector, a human art form. We would imagine that dance probably started as a way to communicate, as a way to share stories, as a way to pass down histories. When you look at both traditional dance forms, indigenous dance forms, and contemporary forms, there's a strong aspect of expression. We're trying to say something. We're trying to express a feeling or tell a story. Whether that's spa, whether that's ballet, that expressive narrative element is wired into dance. Parkinson's takes away the expressive qualities that people have in their own body. It takes away the amplitude that people have in their movements. It takes away the ability to move one's face to create facial expression. And it often robs people of vocal projection and enunciation. When we're moving and vocalizing in class, we are giving people access to that expressive capacity of the performing arts. And I think that's a very important aspect. Finally, social. Again, the other really ancient element of dance is that it's a social connector. Right up until today, we go out when we go to a party or we go out to a club or we go to a wedding. Dance is embedded in that because it's a cultural ritual, right? We, that's how we meet people. That's how we 
communicate non-verbally. That's how we meet people. It's, it's wired in. And Parkinson's is a very isolating condition. A lot of people feel uncomfortable going out in public. They might be more resistant to go out to connect with the social networks they used to be part of. They might have difficulty actually just getting out, physically getting out. The dance class provides a community where people don't have to explain what's going on for them. Everyone there is going through similar challenges and they feel a sense of belonging and connection with everyone in the room. The social bonds that start to evolve in the class are really strong and really important for nurturing folks as they are living through what can be a fairly isolating condition. One of the things that you said, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm mischaracterizing your words, it's the people that attend our dance classes, they're not patients, they're dancers. What did you mean by What we saw when we started this program is that people living with Parkinson's, they're, they become medicalized in the eyes, of course, the medical profession, but also themselves. They see themselves as patients. They see themselves as identifying as someone living with Parkinson's. And then all the other aspects of their identity come after that. That's true for family members. It's true for friends. In our worldview, in the arts, we really wanted to change that. We wanted to say, no, when you come into class, we don't see you as a patient. You are living with Parkinson's. We can't change that. But when you come into this space, you are a dancer. We're going to see you and frame your experience as dancers. We're not seeing you here as dealing with a medical condition. We are aware of some of the challenges you have, and we're gonna find a way creatively to choreograph through that or around that, or with that, but you're not here because you have a problem. I think that's one of the major differences between a clinical perspective and an arts perspective. The clinical, the sort of medicalized perspective is you have a problem, we want to address that problem, and we want to try to make your symptoms less intense and help you live better. And that's great. On the art side, we don't see Parkinson's as a problem, we see it as an opportunity to re-engage with the creative self, to re-engage with somebody in a way that they have the power and the independence, if you will, the autonomy to make choices for themselves, to have their own creative voice come out, and to explore movement in a way that feels comfortable for them. At the end of the day, we know from a lot of the research that there are very tangible clinical benefits to dancing, but at the end of that class, the participants feel that they have been creative, that they've been dancers, that they've had a wonderful, fun time with other people, and that they're part of an artistic world. That reframes their identity away from, I am a patient first, to here I am as a dance student, or a dancer, or a choreographer, or at least a creative individual. I think that reframing is really important, because Parkinson's is a chronic condition that people live with for decades. We're not careful about reframing their identity and retelling their story. Then that burden, that weight of being a patient for the rest of your life starts to weigh down on you pretty heavily. With dancing, you're really seeing the individual as a person, not seeing them for their condition. Yeah. When people come into the studio, we see them as people who have so much to say and so much to express with their bodies. The very elements that is affected by Parkinson's is also their instrument. And that's a big difference. I think on the medical side, there's often a focus on the deficit. What can't we do? What has been taken away? What are the limitations? What's dangerous? On the artistic side, I think we really look for what are the opportunities? What are the possibilities? What is still available to this person? How can we creatively navigate around the roadblocks to find a path that is expansive, that allows that person to fulfill a creative mission for themselves or to fulfill a social mission. Maybe they're there because they really want to connect and feel a sense of belonging and to touch and to see. So I think that's an important distinction. And the element of this that's, I think, really critical is that the whole family's involved in this class. It's not just the person with Parkinson's. When you're looking at the medicalized view, it's like there's the person with the condition and then there's the family. Now, we know in Parkinson's, everyone's affected, but no one else is really getting treatment. But in dance, 
We understand that the family's affected, and so we invite the family to come in and be part of that class. People are dancing together. People are supporting each other. What's really nice about that is it enables the person with Parkinson's to see their partner in a different light. At home, I think it can get very stressful. There's a lot of negotiation and challenge and struggle, quite honestly. In class, it's lightness, it's interaction, it's fun, it's joy. It's those partners get to view each other in a very different way. And I think that just gives a little bit of a burst, a spark to the relationship that is essential. Because if you are only helping your Parkinson's loved one go to doctor's visits and make sure they're on their pill schedule and help them out of the car, that is important stuff. But it starts to, again, it starts to weigh on you. Here in class, we have an opportunity to rebuild that relationship through a creative lens. I think it's fundamentally important because it really is about working as a team. When you're living with Parkinson's, you have to have a team that is supporting you. Dance is also about a team. It's a partnership. There's a reason that most dancers work in companies. We work together to support each other, to create something bigger than ourselves. That's what happens in the Dance for PD class as well. What you do in dance potentially translate into everyday life. Parkinson's is the window and it's the focus of our program, but everything that I'm saying I think is applicable more broadly. Now, dance is something that unfortunately for a lot of us is extracted from our lives as we get older. We're all born dancing. As young beings, we dance. We don't even think about it. When music's on, we're moving, we're bopping around. Some of us then start dancing a little bit more formally in a class setting. And then over time, for whatever reason, there are a lot of reasons, people absorb the message that grown-ups don't dance unless they're doing it professionally or unless they're at a social event and they dance begrudgingly or embarrassingly. I think that's a shame because dance is part of our human wiring. It's something that very few animals do. We should feel absolutely comfortable accessing dance throughout our lives and pushing out those social prompts and cues that say, ah, oh, dance is not for grownups. Dance is really difficult or dance is off limits or dance is only for people who are on stage. There's so much wrong with that view. We're trying to change that. Our focus, of course, is Parkinson's, but everybody can have the same benefits. Dance is a physical, cognitive, social, and emotional expressive for everybody, regardless of your level of physical ability or challenge. That's why we're starting to see dance, not only for people with Parkinson's, but people living with other movement disorders like MS, Huntington's, people living with memory issues like Alzheimer's, people who've survived strokes, people living with cancer. But really, all older adults should be dancing because of the physical and cognitive benefits that are married together. And really, everybody should be dancing. <laughs> that's my view. It, it just seems like there's something unique about dancing that sets it apart from other types of physical activity. Dance is unique because it is both a physical form. It is a good form of exercise at the very basic level of it is aerobic, it deals with strength and it deals with flexibility. But on top of that foundation, there are so many layers that relate to well-being. Those layers are sense of your own body, right? Awareness and knowledge of your own body sense of your own self in relationship to others, the mind play that goes on in dance. What I mean by that is not that you're mind playing games with other people, which you may be doing, but that your mind is working in ways that it otherwise doesn't when you are doing other activities. So let's take, for example, walking on a treadmill. When you're walking on a treadmill, the cognitive load is very basic. You are focused on an automatic movement that most of us do from the age of 14 to 18 months, right? You can change the variables of that by going faster or by increasing your incline. But that's basically it. Your arms are swinging naturally and there's not a lot of other stuff going on, which is why when people are on the treadmill, they have to do something else to distract them, themselves. When you're dancing, the activity itself is so interesting for our brains. We, are, we dive into that. We don't need to distract ourselves. We actually need to be more mindful about what we're doing. And we need to use our brains not as a 
separator, i.e. I'm doing this movement over here automatically, and then I'm thinking about something else entirely over here. No. In dance, the brain becomes an integrator. It connects the choreography with imagery. What am I trying to go for? What's the aesthetic quality? Am I moving through water? Am I trying to create a beautiful flower? Am I telling a story of heartbreak? Whatever that imagery is, it's in there. That's telling me what the movement quality is. How am I moving? And then, of course, music is such a powerful element in dance. When you're on the treadmill, the music is like just keeping a beat. But in dance, the music becomes the rhythmic foundation. It becomes the emotional and expressive foundation. It tells you about the phrase. How many moves am I doing before the music changes or repeats? There's a kind of overarching structure. And even the harmony. Is it in a major key? That makes me feel upbeat and happy. Is it a minor key? That has a certain melancholy to it. So there are so many of these layers that that build onto that foundation of pure physical movement that make dance a very full and fulfilling activity for human beings with human brains that are that to like to make connections, that like to dig into and work on puzzles, that like to that like to integrate things as much as we can to create a unified whole, which is dance is a unifying physical activity. We we embody the harmony. No matter what kind of dance you're doing, there's that sense of everything is working together to express myself, to express myself and to connect with others. And I think that's a very ancient drive, that need to both express and feel part of something. I wanted to express one more element, which just, or reiterate one more element that I think is really important, which is the word quality, right? In a standard exercise intervention or activity, or something like the Olympics, in most of those events, the movement quality doesn't matter. You're going for you're going for a result. Whether that's jumping over the high jump or skiing down a slalom. We see movement quality in elite athletes because they move beautifully, because they're so efficient and they're so graceful. But the goal is not to be graceful unless you're doing figure skating or gymnastics where there is some aesthetic aspect of it. We think about when you go for a run or you lift weights, you're not thinking about what it looks like. You, know, you may want to use good form so you're not injuring yourself, but you don't care about these things. And dance, you are very much focused on what something looks like. And that loop, that activity of thinking about the goal of what you want it to look like and then feeding that goal back into your body to make it look like something is a very advanced cognitive process. It's one reason why in dance studios, we use a mirror because you're constantly seeing yourself and making adjustments and making sure that what, you're, what you think you're doing actually is expressing the thing that you want to express. Now, a footnote to that is in, Parkinson, in the Parkinson's classes, we don't really use the mirrors. They're not necessary because we don't, we're not creating uh, or trying to create professional dancers, but we have people mirrored in their minds. What would you, how would you change your movement so that it looks like a tree? What kind of tree would you like to make? Or imagine that you are moving through water. What is that? How would you change your movement so that it appears to us that you are moving through water? So we're applying some very specific qualities. And what that does is it gives people a real sense of control because they're able to calibrate, even with Parkinson's, they're able to calibrate their movements to, to create a certain aesthetic effect, to say something very specifically about who they are or where they are or what kind of environment they're in. And that's something I think that sets dance apart from so many other physical activities, particularly exercise, where your non-aesthetic goal versus a very aesthetic goal. And this is also, this also allows for many different access points, right? If you're coming into an experience where you are asked to raise your arm to a certain level, that might be really hard for you. You might not be able to do that. In dance, we very rarely do that. We're going to ask people to move with a certain quality, right? So instead of saying, could you lift your arm 90 degrees? I might say, can you raise your arm as if your arms are wings, the wings of a swan? How does that change your quality? And once people then hook into that quality and that imagery, they're actually able to have quite a lot of mobility, more mobility than if you just say, 
if you give them a mechanical goal, lift your arm 90 degrees. Lift your arm 90 degrees doesn't tell you how, it just tells you what. And we found that dance is really good at being specific around the how am I moving? How should I approach that movement? And so it engages the imagination in the service of movement. And that's a very powerful tool for folks who might have some roadblocks in their movement. So that's why the qualitative aspect is important. And getting back to that accessibility, maybe someone really doesn't have mobility, but they can still achieve the quality. So even if they really can't lift their arms 90 degrees, they can only go 20 degrees, they can still move their arms like wings. They still can achieve success in that. And that's what matters. That's a beautiful success. Amazing. It's just um, the types of words can influence the type of movement a person can produce. They're not just this mechanical move your arms nine degrees. It's move your arms that they do a wing. Absolutely love that. Yeah, the dance is a kind of movement poetry. And so to cue that poetry, you need vivid language. You need poetry, language poetry, to cue the movement poetry. And that's where I think the imagery and the qualitative cues come in very strongly. Dance PD celebrated its 20th anniversary, I believe, last year. Huge congratulations. Thanks. It was a huge milestone for us. What is the incredible story behind Dance for PD? Dance for PD really started from the community. Because in 2001, when the Mark Morris Dance Group opened a new dance center in Brooklyn, New York, we wanted that building to be a center for the community. We wanted it to be a hub where anybody and any body could come in and access really high quality dance instruction and experiences and feel comfortable there. One of the people who picked up on that message was a woman named Oli Westheimer. At the time, Oli had founded and was coordinating a support group for people with Parkinson's. And Oli had a dance background and she was thinking a lot about ways that she could really take her group out of that medicalized model of Parkinson's and create other activities for them to do. Dance was one of the things that she kept coming back to because she thought about all of the skills and strategies that dancers use to move. Also, the fact that dance is a very social activity. She put those together and thought, this is a perfect modality. Who would do this with me? Who would collaborate with me to offer this kind of program? Very shortly after this thought process, she opened the New York Times and read about the new Mark Morris Dance Center and the vision that Mark and his team had for creating a community hub. She said, I'm a member of the community. Maybe I'll go meet with them. Oli also knew about Mark's work. She knew that music was very important for Mark as a choreographer. She had a feeling that it would be a good fit. She didn't know how good a fit it would be, though. When she had that first meeting, she proposed this class, and our executive director, Nancy Yumanoff, said, this sounds like a good idea. We don't have any experience in this area. We don't have any knowledge, really, of what people with Parkinson's need, but we can provide teachers, we can provide musicians, we can provide studio space, and we'll do all that if you can find the participants. That was the deal. The very first class, which I taught in October of 2001, was for about six people. Six brave people who had never danced before, all living with Parkinson's. And Jared, what's interesting is in 2001, there was no research on dance and Parkinson's. There was almost no research or very little research on exercise and Parkinson's. The standard movement intervention for Parkinson's was physical therapy and occupational therapy. So this was really out there. This was radical. There was no basis for them coming in at all, except that Oli was a good convincer. She said, just come try it once. See if you, how you like it. I came in with just a few little factoids about Parkinson's. I really didn't know much. I knew that people might have difficulty with balance. So it probably made sense to start seated. I knew that people might have difficulty with speed of movement. And I knew that people would get tired. That's about all I knew. 
That first class was really just me trying things and the participants responding, and it was a conversation. And that conversation has continued right up until this day. I think we know a lot more, and we've been to dozens of conferences about Parkinson's, and we now train other teachers to do this work. I stand by the work very humbly in saying that we are learning every class that we teach. We're learning something new. There's a partnership with the Parkinson's community in which we learn from them what we can do to facilitate their experience. And they learn from us the magic and joy of dance. It's a collaboration to this day. After the first session, we just sat down and talked for a while. And I listened to them as they shared with me what their experience was in the class and what they wanted to do more of and what was really difficult for them. And it went from there. From six people to now it's global ecosystem, Dance for PD dancers. I believe they offer Parkinson's dance classes at the Sydney Opera House as well. Yeah, there's yeah. a very strong network, Dance for Parkinson's network in Australia that's been spearheaded by Erica Rose Jeffrey, who's an amazing force and visionary. When Erica Rose moved from California to Brisbane, Around 2013, the first thing she wanted to do was to work with us to, to launch a network there in Australia. And yeah, there are classes at the Sydney Opera House. There's, there are classes in almost every major Australian city now. It's definitely part of the infrastructure, which is exciting, but it's also in 28 other countries as well. I think one of the aspects of the program that's allowed it to be shared, I don't want to use the word replicated because each location is its own unique ecosystem. It's its own unique cultural phenomenon. We, all of the teachers share a similar philosophy and approach, but the content of those classes is determined by the community and it's determined by the cultural parameters in which the class is taking place. That is so important because I think the biggest mistake is to try to do a cookie cutter approach, which imposes the dance styles that we do in our class on everybody else. That would be the wrong way to do it. The right way is to really share a blueprint for a class structure and approach, and then let the teaching artists and the community members figure out how that blueprint is actually built, how it's filled in, and what stylistic elements are valuable to them. What music do they want to use? What are the cultural dance forms that are unique to that particular community. The class in Melbourne is gonna look very different from the class in Pune, India. And that class is gonna look very different from the classes in South Africa and the classes in the UK and in Brazil. I love that from these classes, research starts to come out based on those cultural dance forms. Our research has been based on a combination of modern dance, contemporary dance, and ballet and tap. The research in Brazil has done samba, which is native form of dance in Brazil, as the national dance of Brazil, and that's brought into the dance for Parkinson's classes there. They're doing some good, rigorous research on that. That's fundamental, I think, to helping the network grow because people can grow it on their own terms with our support. But you've got this dance curriculum, but then you cater it to the specific cultures where you're delivering it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think what enables that to work is that when we step back, all dance forms share a common DNA. Just like all humans share 99.9% .9 of our DNA. All dance forms share a DNA that, that, that is made up of elements that are helpful for people with Parkinson's. Whether you're working on traditional dance from China, whether you're doing Bharatanatyam, whether you're doing flamenco or samba, the elements of balance, weight shift, musicality, coordination, patterning, how the feet fall on the floor, motor sequencing, social interaction, gestural storytelling, that's in all of those forms. That's why I think it works because and people always ask me, what is the best form of dance for people with Parkinson's? Is it tango? Is it ballet? Is it salsa? Yes, there is no best form because they all share the fundamental building blocks that make dance valuable for people with Parkinson's. Those building blocks just happen to be filtered through different styles, 
But really, when you boil it down, the elements are exactly identical. In tango, for example, there's a lot of research on tango and balance because tango is all about, it's a standing dance, a traveling dance, where you're constantly having to shift your weight and maintain your balance in while locomoting. So that's very specifically for that. But is it very expressive in the arms? No, because you're basically holding a partner. So your arms aren't doing very much at all. So you want to balance that with something like contemporary dance or ballet, where there's a very strong, or hula, hula, very strong gestural, gestural amplitude is what I call it. Big gestures that, that require you to utilize your arm movements. And that's why I think dance for PD, the structure of the class or the content of the class has become, wherever it is, quite mixed. So people draw from various styles to make sure they're getting at all of the aspects of that DNA. And, but I think that's what makes it work. And one of the things that I see is a lot of exchange among teachers. So we all get together virtually to share approaches, to share styles, to watch each other's classes. And that kind of international exchange makes each class stronger because we're able to, we're able to enrich what we're doing with our own communities. You mentioned at the start that there were only about six participants in these classes, and there was very little research at that point on Parkinson's and dance. How did the research start informing these dance classes and when did it start developing? The research really started around 2006, 2007 in a tango program, actually. The researchers had been inspired by the Dance for Parkinson's program and they were tango dancers. So they said, we're going to study tango, which is great. And so they did some initial studies that became the basis of the literature in terms of a, an approach, a rigor, and a quality of the research. So that was Gammon Earhart and Madeline Hackney. At the time, they were both at Washington University in St. Louis. And then some other studies started coming out. There was a team in Freiburg, Germany that came and trained with us, and they started doing a project there and studying it as part of a, a research team. And then we conducted some research on our class, and then things started to snowball. I think at the beginning, we had to initiate research. We had to, to suggest it. Now there are a number of researchers around the world who are just interested in this area of work and they are committed to adding dance for Parkinson's to their exploratory portfolio. It's just something they're interested in. They're doing a series of studies on the imp impact of dance on people with Parkinson's. And so it's taken on its own life. We really serve as a clearinghouse and a resource for them because we're not a research institution. We're a dance organization and a dance company. So what we do is we foster, we support, we provide access to our participants so that they can participate in research studies and we help in any way that we can, but we are not ourselves conducting research. We don't have a principal investigator on our staff. I think one of the most amazing things about the place where you're located, which is New York, that arts culture, and you also got amazing research institutions like New York University and Columbia. What is it like to be in New York and you've got all of this culture and all these resources there? You feel incredibly fortunate to be in New York because of the wealth of resources. And, you know, what's really interesting is that there's an incredible richness and diversity on the artistic side in terms of cultural institutions and cultural participants, people who are interested in being part of the arts. And we have an incredible wealth of research institutions, Columbia, NYU, Rockefeller University, and wealth of clinical research institutions that have first-rate movement disorder centers. So that's fantastic. The challenge is building the bridge between them, because traditionally, arts and culture have been siloed from scientific research and medical research. And so we see ourselves as a bridge where there are others and many others, but we see ourselves as one bridge to start to bring together into one room the wealth of arts culture and the wealth of science and research culture in New York. And getting people to the same table is, can be a challenge because everybody's so busy and they're all caught up in their own silos. But we really, our program is about that bridge. It's about the merging of arts and medicine in a way of... of therapeutic outcome for an artistic venture. 
And so we're trying as much as we can to build collaborative partnership and serving as the keystone really between those two major areas of interest in the city. The area where this is particularly interesting for us and for researchers is this giant field of creative aging. So we know from the medical side that we have a huge challenge as the population of older adults gets larger and larger. We are living longer. We're having to recognize and acknowledge that older adults have a variety of challenges that aren't solely addressed by the medical system. They can't be. We don't have the resources. The medical system doesn't have the resources to cope with everything that an aging population needs. That's where, on the other side, we understand the huge benefits of bringing creativity and artistic expression, artistic experience into the aging process. From all the things I talked about earlier, from sense of self-efficacy to engagement, the very core example, I think, is not actually Parkinson's, but Alzheimer's, where they're just, there aren't really good medical solutions to helping people live with dignity. Whereas on the artistic side, dance programs, music programs, in particular music is a very, very strong support for people living with Alzheimer's, people who are having difficulty speaking or remembering people's names can actually remember songs. They can remember the words to songs. They can sing along. So that deep sense of being being engaged in a creative process, regardless of other things that may be more challenging, that's being recognized across the spectrum. So I, I think that's one big bridge that can be built. And it's certainly an area that a lot of different players are looking at because it is an intractable challenge on the medical side, right? How do we maintain well-being and provide dignity in life for this large cohort of older adults? And one of the best ways to do that is by engaging folks in the arts as, as much as we can and by giving them all of those benefits that we just, we really can't do through medication through pills. And it's a lot more affordable as well, right? To have 25 people in a dance class experiencing those benefits versus what we're looking at now is does participation in a class like Dance for PD reduce hospital visits? Does it reduce falls? Does it reduce the amount of medication that somebody has to take? We don't have the answers to that yet, but that's for me one of the next areas of research because if we can understand that, then we really are not just at the table with our friend in the medical profession, but we have a very strong economic argument for them as well. Because we have a very budget-driven system here in the U.S., right? Because of private insurance and also because of government insurance. We're constantly thinking about how much does healthcare cost? And if we can start seeing numbers around actually participating in weekly dance class reduces fall risk by a certain percentage, and that reduces hospitalization by a certain percentage, and that reduces the cost to insurers by a certain percentage, then we start to understand how this kind of program in the arts has an economic pillar and has a really important role to play in reducing costs to the system overall and also generating much-needed funds for arts organizations that have always struggled. To, to pay the bills. You asked for a tangent, but that's a tangent. I think there are many layers of collaboration between artists and scientists. And of course, the sort of creative research is one part of that. But another element of that is this economic remodeling of what does it look like to care for an older population through creative means. Starting to see the arts or even dance companies as, as extensions of the healthcare system. Last year, students from the Movement for Parkinson's Dance Program performed at the Flint Center in Vermont. What went into preparing for that performance? This was a project that we'd been wanting to do for a long time. It's a project that we did in New York a few years ago. We think of our Parkinson's participants as dancers, we want to give them the full experience of dancing. That includes not just taking class, but being part of a performance project. We have a very close partnership with our friends at the 
Flynn Theater Group, the Movement for Parkinson's program there, led by Sarah McMahon. It turns out that the Mark Morris Dance Group was performing at the Flynn Theater. And we thought this would be a great opportunity to collaborate, really to invite the Parkinson's dancers to perform as part of the Mark Morris Dance Group show. We spent several months rehearsing on Zoom because we were still within the heat of the pandemic and it just didn't seem safe to bring everyone together. It also meant that we could rehearse weekly from New York without having to travel to Burlington, which would be about a five-hour drive. It made the project possible. And we went up the week of the performance and spent a day with the group working with them and getting everything ready for the stage. They were already ready. They'd been ready for weeks. Then they were the first piece on this program with the Mark Morris Dance Group. That was the first time that we really joined the two parts of our company, which is the professional performing company, Mark Morris Dance Group and Dance for PD. It was transformative for everybody because I think that's another siloing or separation that's happened between professional dancers and non-professional dancers. This performance really challenged that siloing. It challenged that separation and brought everyone together. Yes, they're dancers at different levels, different abilities, different training, but we're all here to share and to perform and to build a sense of community and expression by being on stage. They performed an excerpt of a piece of Mark Morris's called Falling Down Stairs is the name of the piece. The section was the beret. It's music by Bach. There was a live cellist playing on stage with us, and it was just transformative. You mentioned that you were preparing during the pandemic. How did the COVID-19 pandemic affect overall dance class? When COVID hit in March of 2020, we were really challenged to figure out how to sustain our programming because everything that we'd done from the class design to the messaging about the program to the research about the program was all based on people coming together to a studio and dancing together with teaching artists and a musician. We had to think really fast about how to translate that and make it accessible for people who were really stuck at home for many months and years. Turned out to be years. We thought it'd be a few weeks, right? We started teaching on Zoom. It was very rough at the beginning. A lot of people really weren't comfortable with the technology. They didn't know how to use it. They couldn't see or hear what was going on. But over time, we oriented people. We trained people. We got better at doing it ourselves. And it became a truly robust program of online classes that continues to this day. Obviously, we are back to in-person classes as well. But a number of our classes are either hybrid, in which we're in the studio, but also streaming to an audience at home, or are fully online. It, the silver lining of the pandemic was that it expanded our participant base threefold. Before the pandemic, we maybe had 600 people participating in our New York programs in the course of a month. We had a larger group of 1,500 in New York who came, but a sort of regular group, people who came every week, was about 600, 650. Once we started the online program, that shot up to 1,800 a month, 1,900 a month, um, 2,000 people a month coming into those classes. It was a significant increase in the number of people who were benefiting. And you could say they're not getting the benefits of being in the studio. They're not getting the social interaction. That may be true, but we built these classes to be as social as we could. There was a discussion period before class and after class. We gave people a chance to be in breakout rooms with each other. What we saw was that people who used to come to an in-person class once a week, suddenly they were coming to online classes three or four times a week. Even though it might have been slightly diluted as an experience, they were getting more of it. In essence, it we felt like it either balanced itself out or people were actually getting more dance in their week than they were before. And that's one reason why we decided to keep it. We realized that from an accessibility standpoint, if you're not feeling well or you have an injury or the transportation system is not working for you that day, you should have access to a class from the comfort of home. And we want to maintain that access into the future. Our program now is all about offering access on multiple channels. It was also an opportunity to offer classes in other languages. During the pandemic, we started a Zoom class in Spanish and a Zoom class in Mandarin as well. It was just much easier to do that to a wider group that could access it online than trying to find like one specific location where we would attract enough Spanish speakers or enough Mandarin speakers to, to really make it work. This allowed us to 
provide a more broad spectrum access to people all over the world. I think people who take these online classes describe to me that there's a kind of intimacy that happens in online learning that doesn't happen in the studio because to them, most of them are in speaker view. They're just seeing me and it looks like I'm just talking right to them. They're not seeing all the other people in the room as they would in the studio. But they say, it's great. I feel like you're just teaching me. Of course, there are some activities that I structure to be interactive where I'll encourage people to go into a gallery view. They can see everybody. They can dance with each other. But a lot of the class, it it feels in some ways like a private lesson where here I am, here you are, we're looking at each other and there's something special about that. There is something special about that. Feeling like this class is just for you. Yeah, yeah. And a studio is a wonderful place as well because you're feeling the energy of the other people. You're having a fuller sensory experience in that you're also using touch, right? You're holding hands with other people. You're hearing the breath sounds of others. It's more full spectrum. But I think for some people, it's also intimidating to be in an in-person group setting. One of the other things we discovered about the Zoom classes is it did afford people a sense of privacy. Parkinson's, for some people, is not something they want to be public about. There, there is still a stigma attached to Parkinson's in certain communities and for certain individuals. When you come into a group class in a studio, you cannot be anonymous. You are visible. People see you. When you're on Zoom, you can be anonymous. You can turn your camera off. You can change your name. You can be whoever you want to be. And you can engage in that experience on your own terms. And I think that's very powerful, particularly with dance, which I think intimidates people. We had a lot of people coming in for the first time, and I'm not sure they would have come in for the first time to a studio, but because it was on Zoom, it felt a little bit safer. They were able to just, again, have that privacy and that anonymity, at least at the beginning, as long as they wanted to. I think that was really comforting for people. Was that one of the reasons why you've still kept it going even after the pandemic? Yeah, that sense of privacy and that sense of being able to try it out before committing to being in a studio are two reasons we decided to keep the online program going. I think it just also, it became a lifeline for people. They came to depend on it. They came to depend on having that scheduled class and building it into their weekly schedule was important. It became a ritual for them. We understand, I guess I'm sorry that we didn't think of it earlier. I'm sorry that it took a pandemic to to push us to really build out an online program because the issues of accessibility were definitely present before the pandemic. Particularly in places where there is no class, in a rural setting, for example, or even in a large city where there is a class, transportation can be very challenging. Weather can be challenging. There's a period in parts of Australia where people couldn't go out because of the wildfires. We were able to provide free, easy access to our online programs because we wanted people to keep moving even though they weren't going outside, even though they weren't going to their community classes. Once again, proved itself as a lifeline because with Parkinson's, you don't have a choice not to move. You really have to bring movement into every day. I feel like the online classes allow people to bring movement into every day in an easy, accessible way. We don't want to lose that. We want to keep that. You were really a lifeline for people with Parkinson's because when everyone had to stay home, they could still engage in these classes online. Yeah, that's right. People used the word lifeline to describe the program during the pandemic. And it, it was, and it really highlighted those four elements that I talked about earlier because it kept them physically active. It kept them cognitively, cognitively engaged. People weren't going out to museums. They weren't going out to see shows. Their worlds became so small. By bringing in different themes, by, by using art as an inspiration, we would share an image of a painting or sculpture as a prompt for us to move. By bringing in lots of different music, we were able to keep people stimulated. And then, of course, being able to express to each other and not just the person who you're sharing a living room with in lockdown was incredibly important to be able to communicate. And then that sense that you're part of a community, right, became 
even more heightened during the pandemic. I think it just heightened the benefits of the program rather than providing a challenge. When we started, we thought, how can any of this work on Zoom? And actually, Zoom served to underscore the value of the program and the intensity of those benefits. And we also, one of the things I'll mention is that we realized that some people don't have access to the internet. They don't have a computer at home. We also created a dance by phone option for them. They could call a number and they would press an extension number and listen to an activity that they could do just by listening to their phone. It was not a long activity, it was about three minutes. We had about six of these, six of these activities, but they were something. They allowed people to just enter the world of dance for a few moments and to keep moving, to keep to stay cognitively aware. And that was another lifeline for people. We've kept that going because I find people still use that resource. People call in at all hours to listen to those recordings. That's another side benefit of the pandemic was really thinking about who's not at the table, who's not able to access this, and how do we enable them to to still access some elements of dance in their own lives. It's amazing what technology can do now is making access to dance classes more equitable. Traditionally, people had to go to a studio to attend these class. Now they can attend it anywhere in the world. Yes, absolutely. This is one of our goals, really, is to make this kind of class accessible to anyone who can benefit from it. I think the initiative to create multiple channels, whether that's an in-person live class, an online Zoom class, on-demand class, because we record all of our Zoom classes and make them accessible through an online library, or the dance by phone option. We also have DVDs and videos that people can use at home. We're really trying to meet people where they are and make sure wherever they are that dance can be part of their lives. David, you've had this amazing career with dance. I can now say that my career in dance is a real balance between being a performing artist, performing dancer, and being a teaching artist and a facilitator for this kind of community program. What I can say is that dance sustains and fosters resilience in a way that I did not know when I was a younger dancer. I was aware of the fact that dancers who are performing are incredibly resilient because they have to work through pain and injury and a lot of hard work in order to do what they need to do. I understood that element of resilience. What I didn't understand was that dance can provide that kind of motivation and resilience for everyone else as well, and particularly for those living with Parkinson's. A great example of this is actually when we were putting together our first performance project in 2012. We were rehearsing weekly with our group and they were doing beautifully. But we were, about two weeks before the show, we were hit with a huge storm, Superstorm Sandy. And New York City became, it was impenetrable. You couldn't move around from one place to the next. It was flooded. Subway was flooded, subway shut down, roads were flooded. It was a very challenging situation. And this was two weeks before the performance. And four days after that storm, we had a rehearsal at the dance center and 15 out of 16 of the individuals showed up to rehearse. By, by some method, they were able to get themselves through this flooded disaster zone to, to be part of the project. And that to me was amazing because it spoke to not just the kind of physical strength that dance gives people, not just the sense that this class supports people through tangible benefits, but the idea of being part of a dancing community itself is such a strong motivator and it makes people accountable to their community in a way that is was just mind-blowing for me. And this is all happening among a community that often experiences apathy and fatigue and, and challenges getting around anyway. So it just spoke to, wow, this is a very, dance is a very powerful force for giving meaning to people's lives. These people came together 
in spite of a huge challenge because dance mattered to them. And being part of this project and this community mattered to them. Never forget that story because to me, that was the essence of resilience and represented the power of dance to help people really override any barriers in their way. And it has that kind of power. Participants showed up despite flooding and storms in New York City. There's something more to dancing than just the dancing. And here, because for deeper reasons. That's it. They're part of something that is meaningful to them, that gives them a sense of accomplishment. They're an essential member of a team. They're, they're given the responsibility of caring for others. That also is really important. When you're living with Parkinson's, there's a lot of focus on people caring for you. But in, in this example, it's, I don't want to miss that rehearsal because then I'm going to let everybody else down. And I don't want to do that. I want to support everyone else. I have a role to play. And that's very empowering. It's empowered to have a role to play. And I think that is true even when there isn't a giant storm. Just you have a role to play. You are part of this community. And dance is the glue that holds everyone together in this community. Life lessons from dancing, it's being able to show up even if you don't want to and knowing that other people are going to be depending on you too. That's exactly right. That is what being a member of a cast is about. You, everybody's interconnected. Everyone's reliant on everyone else. That draws you to a certain level of responsibility and accountability that I think is really valuable. In the dance environment, everybody has a voice and everyone's voice is powerful and everyone's voice is important. We want to hear from you. Everybody has a role in being part of that community. That's a very different message and a very important message. The very important message. David, you started your career as a dancer for the company that you now work for, which is the Mark Morris Dance Group. And now being the program director of Dance PD, how did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in dance? I started dancing when I was eight years old. I really loved it from the very first class that I took. But as I went along, I wasn't sure that I was going to have a career dancing. And I did many other things in, in high school and focused elsewhere. When I got to college, started to take modern dance. I'd only really done ballet until I got, until age 18. And when I got to college, I discovered modern dance and realized, wow, there's actually, this is really interesting. I might want to pursue this. And so when I left college, I decided to move to New York and I gave myself three years to try to dance professionally, make it, whatever that meant. I wasn't exactly sure what that meant, but, and so about a year after I moved to New York, I did a lot of freelance, freelance projects my first year, tried to dance with as many people as I could, just soak up as much as I could. And then I started dancing with Mark's company and, and I got hired as a full-time company member about a year after that. It was, I didn't know all along that I wanted to dance professionally, but from about my second year of university, I was committed to at least trying it, seeing what would happen, and that, that led me into, into my path. David, I have a few questions remaining that I ask each of my guests. What does living healthy today mean to you? Living healthier means knowing yourself, knowing what you like to do, knowing what gives you joy, and trying to balance that with what's good for you. Now, I've been very lucky because I agree, I get great joy from dance and from dancing. And I know that also keeps me healthy. So one of the questions I get is, what activity is the best thing to do for someone living with Parkinson's? And although I believe that dance is one of those things, I always say it's the activity that you're going to want to do, that you have a passion for. And if that activity is walking, or if that activity is swimming, or something else, go for that. Do the thing that gives you pleasure. But the key to healthier living, I think, is finding a bridge between the things that you really enjoy, the things that are meaningful to you, and the things that we know from research 
and from anecdote are going to sustain us and support our health. Fortunately, dancing is one of those things. So I, for me, it's relatively easy, but it's about finding your bliss because once you find something that you love to do, you don't have to search for motivation to do it. And so that activity itself becomes a habit. It becomes woven in to your daily life. And that's the key. David accumulated enormous amounts of experience, wisdom, and life lessons. What would you tell your 18-year-old self? I think what I would say to myself is just keep an open mind, keep a broad perspective, think about dance, the role of dance in community, in society, in helping people maintain better lives, whether they're on stage or not, because that's in essence where I've ended up. And I guess I wish that I had that awareness a little bit earlier. But on the other hand, so much about the Dance for PD program has happened uh, just organically as a matter of something that was meant to be that sort of evolved that I'm not sure I would actually change a thing. I just might hope that I would be a little bit more aware of the sort of broad implication of dance as an activity for so many people in this world. Fantastic. It was such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for your excellent questions. Really informed and well-researched, and I can see you've done your homework, and I always appreciate that. It just makes my job a bit more enjoyable. Thank you so much for sharing the benefits dance and how it improves quality of life not just people Parkinson's, but people in general. Thank you so much, David. Enjoy the rest of your evening. All right. Perfect. My Jared. Take care, David. I'm your host, Jared Talvera, and you've been listening to the Healthier Today podcast.